Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. Good Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, it's uh, nice to see you on Zoom. It's it's (laughs) a podcast where we're looking at each other. and Yeah. How are you doing, Ann? Good. Good. I hope you're doing well, too. Yes, I love when the school year starts. Ah, yes. <laughs> Back to structure. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I think we're going to talk a fair amount about donor milk today. So uh, the first uh, article that I want to talk about is an article that was published by Gray and her colleagues entitled The Association Between Type of Supplementation in the Newborn Nursery and Breastfeeding Outcomes at Two and Six Months of Age. And this was published in the Journal of Human Lactation this year. And I and I grabbed this before it I think when was this online. So I'm not sure which month it's been published in. So I think we have really good evidence that when formula supplementation occurs in the hospital and in the first few weeks, uh, it's strongly associated with a shorter duration of exclusive and in fact any breastfeeding. And so this, you know, so this is why we recommend not supplementing because this is really the basis for that baby-friendly hospital step to only supplement if medically indicated because of the impact. Um, but you know, you and I both know that there's never going to be a time that there's zero baby supplemented in the hospital because there are a significant number of people with a delay in lactation or who have insufficient glandular tissue, hypoglycemia, you know, all the things that lead babies to need to find another source of nutrition. So the question is whether supplementing with donor milk is actually more supportive of breastfeeding than formula supplementation. So this study was done uh, to determine if there is an association between the type of supplementation in the newborn nursery and breastfeeding outcomes at two and six months of age. So they wanted to compare supplementation with mother's own milk where she's just, or they are just expressing their own milk Uh, formula supplementation or donor human milk or nothing if they were just exclusively breastfed. So this was a prospective longitudinal observation multi-group cohort study, which means that they just, you know, these people supplemented and then they were followed over time. Um, and, And this occurred at a small rural academic hospital in Vermont with 2,200 births a year. And I just want to say that Vermont does have higher than average breastfeeding rates. Their initiation rate in Vermont is 91% uh, with a breastfeeding rate of 71% at six months and 55% at 12 months. So it's just a breast fest there. (laughs) (laughs) Vermont and Oregon, they're kicking our butts. Absolutely. So uh, this was not, interestingly, this was not a a, a baby-friendly hospital initiative certified hospital. Um, but the lactation consultants saw every patient, which is which I think is common, at least in the smaller hospitals in Wisconsin, where they have a lactation consultant who's dedicated and there aren't that many birds, it's easy for them to see everyone. 
So they sent out uh, 2,343 surveys to 1,111 parents who had the intention to exclusively breastfeed and who also had documentation of at least one breastfeed in the hospital after birth. So they sent out the survey at somewhere between two and three months postpartum and then six to eight months postpartum. And they received about 48% of the surveys back from the breastfeeding group and 33% back from the formula feeding group. Um, meaning when I say breastfeeding and formula feeding, I mean what they supplemented with. So they had um, basically two groups that they studied. There was the pre-donor milk group and the post-donor milk group, which means that they was, there was a group of people who supplemented early um, uh, before they actually had donor human milk on the floor. And they got donor, they started using donor human milk on the floor in 2016. So before they started using donor human milk, the group of dyads who use mother's own milk to supplement were 76% less likely to be breastfeeding at two months compared to exclusively breastfeeding dyads. So if they had to hand express and give their own milk, they were less likely, less likely to be breastfeeding in two months, which I thought was amazing. And the group that used formula to supplement were 86% less likely to be breastfeeding in two months. So clearly these are like markers of difficulty, right? Yeah, that's super fascinating. Yeah. And then at six months, uh, the odds of breastfeeding were similar between those who supplemented with mother's own milk and those who didn't supplement at all. Um, those who received uh, formula supplementation were 66% less likely to be breastfeeding at six months. So it seemed to make a difference. Um, Wait, hang on. Let me make sure that I understand this. So the ones who were supplementing, be it with their own milk or with formula, had significant de decreases early. In, yes, yes. But at six months, the group that supplemented with their own milk was more similar to the group that needed no supplementation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, super it was, interesting. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's pretty weird. Yeah. Um, but then formula supplementation was less likely to be associated with breastfeeding at six months. But then after donor human milk was introduced. There was no difference in breastfeeding rates if they supplemented with mother's own milk versus no supplementation. So it's it was it's almost like a different demographic in a way. Um, that uh, and maybe that has to do with the whole uh, antenatal hand expression craze that they're so comfortable with expressing, you know, with hand expression postpartum that maybe a lot more people were just doing that anyway, and then they got handed, and then they got passed into that. Um, mother's own milk supplementation group. Maybe. And maybe it had to do with the, you know, not just like you, the way you'd say like the craze, it sounds like it's, you know, coming from the patients, but I would imagine that as they introduced donor milk, they really did a lot of nursing education. Right. There's that too. Absolutely. But interestingly, those that received donor human milk as opposed to mother's own milk or exclusively breastfeeding, if they got donor human milk, that was associated with a 67% lower risk of breastfeeding at two months and a 91% lower risk of breastfeeding at two months. If form, I, I should, let me say that again. If they received donor human milk, they had a 67% lower risk of breastfeeding at two months. And if it was formula supplementation, it was a 91% lower risk of breastfeeding at two months. So there was a significant difference at two months between the two. 
At six months, if they received donor human milk, they were 74% less likely to be breastfeeding. And those who received formula were 88% less likely to be breastfeeding. So even at six months, the, the, type of, the type of supplementation did make a difference. So essentially, uh, when they compared formula versus donor human milk and breastfeeding rates, um, they found that the odds of breastfeeding were 74% lower at two months for those who use formula and 58% lower at six months in infants who received donor human milk. Um, they, they also cited another study by Merjana and others in 2020 that found that the receipt of donor human milk versus formula was associated with a five times increased odds of being exclusively breastfed at six months. So the bottom line, is that any supplementation in the first few days was associated with a lower odds of breastfeeding at two and six months when they compare this to exclusively breastfeeding, like direct breastfeeding. So donor human milk um, supplementation does not yield the same breastfeeding rates as those who, direct, who exclusively breastfeed. Um, and they also found that the group that received donor human milk breastfed less than the group that received their own, the mother, their, their mother's own milk as well. Do you know for the study population if they had the opportunity to continue to use donor milk after they left the hospital or whether or not those people were likely to convert to formula at that time if they continued to need supplementation? Yeah, they didn't mention anything about that. Um, I just want to add one more thing before you uh, before you make any more comments in that uh, Laura Care, you know, Laura Care is a researcher who has done a lot of work on donor human milk on the, full, on the floor. And she published a qualitative study, uh, just like talking to women about their attitudes. And some women described donor human milk as temporary, um, but formula supplementation felt more like it was this ongoing plan. And so that's why they were more receptive to donor human milk. So maybe there is that difference of, of like stronger intention um, among those who decide to take donor human milk, because some people won't take donor human milk, right? Um, so it may be this sense of higher self-efficacy among those who choose donor human milk than formula. It's fascinating. And there's so many variables in terms of, you know, what people's beliefs are of whether or not it's a good idea to supplement or whether or not they have the education to know the risks associated with that and whether or not it's being done for a true medical indication versus perceived inadequate supply. I think we are um, working on a QI project where I am around uh, the donor human milk being given to term babies and the, you know, the, what we thought was going to happen when we started it was that exactly what you just alluded to people who, um, are needing a little bit of a bridge would be more likely to feel that it was temporary and they would do a little bit. And then as their own milk volume was increasing, that would get phased out. Unfortunately, because we have an enormous hospital with more than 300 um, postpartum nurses, I think that, you know, the education around that was not as good as it could have been. And in a lot of ways, it was being delivered to the patient very similarly to the way that formula is. They were routinely going, oh, this patient's starting donor milk formula or donor milk supplement. They're 
heating up an ounce and delivering it to the room every three hours with Mm -hmm. no regard to how much the baby is actually breastfeeding or when it should be stopped. And then the formula shortage occurred and um, they were able to implement a program to allow us to sell donor milk to the families at cost at discharge to try to give them a little bit of a bridge because you know, this is the question. If somebody is using donor milk and they're getting ready to leave the hospital and we don't think that they are ready to exclusively breastfeed in terms of how the baby's doing, what do we tell them? Do we say, oh, now you need to do formula. We've given you this donor milk. We've told you it's better than formula, but now you're going to pull the rug out from under you. But the way that it actually went down was we were offering people up to 12 ounces of donor milk to buy at the time of discharge. And there was no way for them to come back and get more. And so they had to decide, do I want it or do I not? And almost everyone would be like, well, there's a formula shortage just in case I am going to take this with me. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like, you know, we know that there is a negative impact on breastfeeding duration if you send people home with that little four pack of two ounce bottles of formula. So sending people home with 12 ounces of donor milk, I think they're even less likely to want to, you know, throw it away or waste it. And so they're probably going to give it to that baby. And that is going to have an impact on the amount they're coming to the breast over those first couple of weeks, which is going to lead to potentially lower milk production in those moms. I, oh my gosh, that is the best. Oh my gosh. That is so ripe for study, right? Oh yeah. Because I mean, just even, even like you could do qualitative studies, like get a researcher to work with you to like do 20 interviews. Like, how did you feel about taking that milk home? Was it a security blanket? Like having something in the freezer, like, right. Everyone wants something in the freezer just in is it a security blanket? What percentage of people even used it, right? Because everyone's like worried about having, you know, not being able to find formula. And then, um, and then looking to see if they did use it, you know, how long did they breastfeed? I mean, that, oh my gosh, that's a study ready to happen. Like, yeah, no, I think this whole thing with donor milk is, is really interesting. We, at the, the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes, which is our Wisconsin, Illinois bank, uh, we have about 17 dispensaries, uh, outpatient dispensaries, meaning uh, that pharmacies, 17 pharmacies between the two states are selling uh, pasteurized donor human milk for people who need a bridge. Um, so like you had mentioned, I think we talked about this earlier, that maybe that's a little bit better because they have to actually go get it. Um, and um, and so, uh, you know, so it's a little bit more of a, you know, thoughtfulness, uh, determining whether or not they really need it, you know, so if they find themselves in real trouble, they can just run over and get it, uh, rather than automatically having it before they even know that they need it. Yeah, I think it would be a lot better if rather than having to have that just in case mentality, we were able to say, hey, if you're going to need, you know, a little bit. And also that allows us to have the conversation around like, what is a really appropriate amount to give over the next 24 or 48 hours? If you are very specific and you tell people, you know, 10 mLs per feeding, or you don't need it during daylight hours, but if you need to give one time at night so that the baby is able to, you know, 
not cluster feed all night and you can get some rest, then sometimes people will do that as opposed to if we give them no instructions and they really go overboard. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. All right. So um, let's see. So you have a study actually on informal milk sharing. Yes. So um, this August 2022 in Breastfeeding Medicine, there was an article titled Human Milk Sharing in the United States, a scoping review um, by Kimberly Coleman, Amanda Adams, and Lori Feldman Winter. And the authors state that the purpose of this scoping review is to synthesize the current literature on human milk sharing in the United States to help health professionals um, better understand how families use this practice for infant nutrition. So let's talk about scoping reviews for a moment, because I've noticed in the last couple of years, scoping reviews have just become all the rage. Like it's a different type of research, right? Mm-hmm. I think of it like, in a way, sort of like meta-analysis without all the numbers. So they're looking to see what is all the research that is done on this topic and bring it all together to give us sort of a lay of the land. Yeah. And also to talk about uh, like where further research is needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I uh, I only recently learned this term, I think in the last year when I, you know, took all of my studies about the different types of studies, I don't remember ever hearing about this, but you're right. I've seen it a lot more lately. Yeah. So um, these authors conducted a systematic search in June of 2021 for articles whose primary outcome was milk sharing, excluding milk banks and preterm hospitalized infants. Results were limited to studies conducted in the United States and published in English after January 1st, 2000. 34 studies met the inclusion criteria and were reviewed, and they were largely observational, 30 of the 34. Participants were predominantly white, married, and middle-income women experiencing lactation problems or in possession of excess breast milk. This is the population that would like their freezer space back. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> now, they have uh, partners who are hunters. <laughs> yeah, um, milk sharing, not for profit, was often facilitated through the internet, but exchanged in person, as opposed to for-profit milk sharing, which often involved shipping. And studies found evidence of milk contamination more frequently, or I should say found study evidence of milk contamination. There was none in the not-for-profit group. Um, no studies documented infant harm. So the author's conclusions were that there's limited research on the milk quality and relative risks of milk sharing and no research on clinical outcomes in infants fed shared milk. The clinic- clinicians have opportunities to engage in conversations about this practice to guide their patients in terms of risk mitigation However, research on um, recipient infant outcomes is urgently needed to inform best practice. Um, Going into a little more detail, they really broke it into risks related to not-for-profit milk sharing and for-profit. And, you know, just for those who may not have heard this term, this is often called informal milk sharing. So um, as I mentioned, this was primarily in a, a middle-income, white, married, educated 
population. Um, participants were motivated by the known health benefits of human milk and its superiority over formula. Donors were driven by the benefit of helping and connecting with families through sharing milk. And they um, were motivated in addition to the barriers to milk banking, for example, cost um, prescriptions and pasteurization, since it destroys some beneficial human milk components. Um, the not-for-profit milk sharing was often facilitated through internet-based milk sharing networks, such as Human Milk for Human Babies, Eats on Feeds, and Milkshare. But the physical exchange of human milk often occurred in person. Research showed donors reported providing frozen as well as fresh milk through local in-person delivery and less often shipped frozen milk. It was exchanged among family and friends and also frequently between strangers. And most participants reported feeling reported following safe milk handling practices such as washing hands and sanitizing equipment few participants reported heat treatment upon receipt. The most common concerns of women um, included disease transmission, contamination, exposure to drugs, and dilution with cow's milk. However, most participants had few or no concerns um, and did not medically screen donors because they trusted them. In addition to limited medical screening of donors, Several studies um, reported minimal involvement of healthcare professionals in milk sharing and highlighted challenges families faced, like logistical stressors in an effort to secure milk, fear of running out, institutional barriers, and social stigma. In response, participants avoided physicians, family, and friends who might judge them. Um, as I mentioned before, there were no studies documenting infant harm, including two case studies. Um, there were also no reports of contamination. Another study found no evidence of differences in macronutrient antimobile protein and bacteria um, by the method of milk exchange. And um, milk sharing has the potential to help infants meet the AAP's breastfeeding goals. One study reported higher rates of exclusivity and duration of human milk feeding among milk sharing participants than the national average. Similarly, research found more participants using shared milk um, were feeding their infants human milk at six months than non-users. The potential benefits for um, this are evident, although the lack of research on the milk quality and relative risks, um, there's, there's still a need for more research. And, and particularly, I would say after, you know, listening to the article that you just presented, I have this big question that wasn't really included in this um, report about what was the breakdown of the ages of the babies of the um, people who were taking um, donor milk. So, you know, was this more of a bridge or were there certain families that really had committed to using breast milk only and they were continuing to get it for months or years? Right. Yes. It's a really good point. Yeah. So then the authors um, moved over to talking about for-profit milk sharing, and this is much shorter. While several internet-based milk sharing networks exist, um, the for-profit sale of human milk was found on one website, only the breast, and in a study of that site, about 5% of participants reported um, for-profit milk sharing solely to make money. 
statements about donors, diet, exercise, drug use, milk handling practices, and milk quality were um, associated with the sale of human milk. And these findings support differentiating for-profit milk sharing where milk was purchased from anonymous donors and shipped to strangers from nonprofit milk sharing. There were five studies included in the review that were published from research on human milk samples that were purchased anonymously online. And the first found that milk samples shipped came without ice and milk was leaking out of plastic bags upon arrival. The investigators found evidence of bacterial contamination and the amount of bacterial growth was associated with the days in transit. Next, the research discovered bovine DNA in several samples, suggesting um, cow's milk was added to them. They also reported detectable levels of caffeine and tobacco metabolites in the majority of samples. There was no evidence of drugs of abuse in the milk samples, and no samples were positive for HIV RNA. So I think um, the authors note that milk sharing participants navigate lactation problems and limited access to breast milk obtained from milk banks to provide infants with an exclusive human milk diet. Those involved in milk sharing place a high value on human milk, and this practice ultimately supports breast milk continuation and exclusivity. Yet, the Food and Drug Administration and the AAP do not recommend milk sharing. Whenever human milk is expressed and handled, there is a risk of contamination. Human milk is a bodily fluid and can carry medications, drugs, and other substances. Um, viral, bacterial, fungal transmission through human milk is possible, the most concerning of which is HIV. Um, to reduce these risks, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine has recommended donor medical screening and safe milk handling practices. In addition, home pasteurization can further reduce the risks of infections. However, it decreases some nutritional and immunological components of human milk as well. And it may be too complicated and difficult in certain settings without access to uniform heating sources. So the um, authors highlight that healthcare professionals have an opportunity to affirm milk sharing relationships and engage in shared decision-making to counsel families about risk mitigation strategies, such as donor medical screening and safe milk handling. Unfortunately, we still have limited research on milk quality and the potential risks of this practice um, and no research on infant health outcomes. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so there are a lot of things to talk about there, but um, I would say in my community, uh, we have pretty high breastfeeding rates in certain parts of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, where I am, and donor milk sharing is huge, um, but we have an association called the Mother's Milk Alliance, where people are screened before they, they're screened just like the screening that we do at the milk banks, at the Cabana milk banks, and the milk is donated and kept in the freezers of the volunteers. And then the milk is distributed to recipients for a donation to help offset the cost of the screening. And um, it is all the rage. I mean, this is <laughs> like this is this really like when you talked about how continuing donor milk uh, after, you know, after birth really extends breastfeeding rates, it, it plays a huge role in the difference in the duration of breastfeeding in our population here in Madison. 
And it's been an amazing resource. And really, uh, I see this calmness that comes across families when they find out they have insufficient glandular tissue and they have access to this donor milk. They're, they really just want their babies to be fed optimally, right? They just want the babies mm-hmm. to have milk, to have human milk. And so it's a huge relief for families. They're so thankful and it's an amazing organization. And I, I cringe when I think about selling milk because it is such a conflict of interest for that person who is selling it. Like, you know, there is motivation to put increase in, the volume, increase the volume, water, goat's milk, human milk, all the things. And they know that this other family is not going to be testing it. And uh, I strongly discourage it. I, I actually just frankly tell people, if you're going to get donor milk, don't buy it. Like that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you talk, what do you tell people about dying? Oh yeah. And I tell them very specifically um, when, you know, it's been studied, it's got cow's milk in it 10% of the time. And I think people are like, Oh no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, I think, yeah. I think my question is, it has your mother's milk bank Alliance made it into the medical literature. Like I was like, this study excluded, you know, certain types of milk banks, but I don't know how much there is written about that particular type of community resource. Oh, I don't think that they've researched. I don't know. These are people who are, you know, dedicating their lives to this work and uh, in in addition to their regular jobs. So um, I don't think that they have that have had the time or finances to do that, but we really, it's such a, a great, um, even just like a, a descriptive, you know what I mean? Like, this is how right. this works. Like, oh, I think yeah. that would be helpful. Yes. I think so too. I think just like a letter to the editor or something like that. Um, absolutely. I think it would be a great, or just even as a QI project or, I mean, as a, um, like an abstract. Yeah. I think you should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to. I mean, I really would love to retire and just like do that kind of stuff for sure. Um, but um, I, I was going to point out that the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine does have their um, their position statement on milk sharing, which is helpful for people that are needing something to give to other physicians uh, to help them, you know, kind of wrap their minds around it. Because I think a lot of other physicians don't understand it. Absolutely, and I think that. Um... You know, it is really when, when I talk to families a lot, it's amazing how often people say to me, cause I'm like, you know, what did, what did we do before scales and pumps and, you know, all of these things. And, you know, you're not gonna, in, in olden times, let your sister's baby starve. Like we had wet nursing. And right. I think that this is a, a sort of form of that in the modern day. and. Uh, a lot of families do benefit. It would be really, really interesting to me to have a little bit better um, understanding of sort of the the populations, you know, those that you're describing insufficient glandular tissue, certainly. I had a patient who she was on ECMO because of COVID when her baby Mm. was delivered at 35 Mm. weeks. And I became aware of her because her husband came into our center and rented four hospital grade breast pumps, which mm-hmm. he then took to her friends who pumped milk for her baby wow. for months. And thank goodness she recovered. She mm-hmm. was able to relactate and eventually provide more than half of the baby's milk herself, but they wow. continued to help her. And it was huge to her. 
Yeah, that is amazing. That's like the ultimate support, right? Mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's uh, so much to talk about on this topic. We should just do um, another podcast this time. And, uh, <laughs> milk sharing and milk donation. And uh, it's. I was going to say that um, about wet nursing um, in Jacqueline Wolf's book, uh, she's going to be our speaker, one of our speakers in November at the Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, IABLE uh, conference on November 3rd through the 5th. And she's a medical historian. And in her book calling that's called uh, Don't Kill My Baby, she talks about the importance of wet nursing in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Even as late as 1930, physicians saw these babies dying from ingesting uh, cow's milk instead of human milk. And they very, very, physicians very, very much advocated um, uh, human milk feeding and uh, and I think, and, and wet nurses, and, and they actually, in, in her book in Chicago, she describes that in Chicago, some physicians, they actually would spend days scouring through the cities to find a wet nurse for their dying infant patient Aww. in the 19th, you know, 20s and 30s even. And so if we think about how, how much human milk was valued in the early 1900s, had they had refrigerator storage, had they had pumps, the whole, I think that we would have seen like a continual valuation and we may not have lost breastfeeding if we would have carried on that value Mm. over time, you know, by enabling the ability, you know, by enabling continued uh, milk sharing and uh, wet nursing. So that's very interesting. Um, okay, so I'm going to move on and talk about two things. Uh, one is uh, a paper that was published in Italy, and this is entitled Complementary Feeding in Preterm Infants, a position paper by Italian neonatal pediatric and pediatric gastroenterology joint societies. So these three societies in Italy came together to have a position statement or a recommendation on complementary feeding in preterm infants, because basically there's nothing out there and there's nothing out there in the United States or elsewhere. Cool. Uh, Yeah, Uh, so this group basically summarized current evidence regarding complementary feeding in preterm neonates in order to draw some sort of recommendation that could be used by healthcare providers and families. And they found that uh, most of the data is really observational. There aren't any like randomized controlled trials on this issue of when complementary feeding should begin. But they actually found a number of things to consider. So first, uh, they cited research that preterm infants who are born at 22 to 32 weeks gestational age were about 10 times as likely to start complementary feeding before four months of age. And I'm not talking about corrected age, I'm talking about chronologic age. Wow. Compared to term infants. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, the foods are often nutritionally inadequate. They're low in energy and protein and variable in vitamins and iron. So that's scary. Um, the second finding is, and that's a good reason to have this kind of protocol um, or recommendation. Um, a second finding is that early introduction of solids in preterm infants is associated with higher risk of rapid weight gain, allergy, and anemia while waiting until seven to 10 months of chronological age may increase the risk of avoidant feeding behavior. So some of these babies, like if they wait too long, are at risk for feeding aversion due to um, their history of tube feeding, 
suctioning, intubation, oral medications, et cetera. Just sort of that, I call it the violation of the sanctuary. Like, (laughs) and a uh, good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, we all guard our airway, right? And so, you know, that's what they're doing. Um, They also discussed that neurodevelopmental skills need to be considered, such as disappearance of tongue protrusion, the reduction of reflexive suck in, in favor of like moving their tongue laterally and readiness to explore new flavors and textures. So they also found some literature that recommended waiting until the corrected age of at least three months, but they didn't explain why that is. And of course, uh, uh, there's that's probably the, probably the reason for that is that there just is no good data out there. So in, in summary, because of all these factors, they really could not come up with an exact age at which to start complementary feeding for premature infants. Um, and you and I both know that premature infants, they kind of rapidly develop, right? They, they develop faster um, than uh, they would be if they were born a term. Um, yes so- and no. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what I, I mean, and, you know, I probably see, I don't know, different kids than you do, but when I think about babies who are born like at, like I see babies who are born at like 32, 34 weeks in the outpatient sector. And a lot of times by, you know, four months or five months of age, they're rolling over, they're reaching out, you know, way earlier um, than what would be their correct, their corrected age. So um, that's what yeah, I, I think it goes both ways. I mean, it probably is a little bit of observational bias that, yeah. you know, those that are like, oh, wow, you know, you're only corrected to two months yeah. and you're, you know, really amazing. But there yeah. are also some babies that were born at term that are on that early line. I think it in general, I I think maybe in case anybody who's listening doesn't really know what we're talking about in terms of corrected age, like if a baby is born eight weeks early, I don't expect them to reach their four month milestone of rolling over until they're six months from their birth date. So four months from their original due date, that would be the, you know, the corrected age of four months. And there's certainly um, changes in but there's a wide range for all babies of, you know, yeah, we say that you should walk at a year, but some babies really do walk at nine months. And my daughter was 14 months. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah, this kind of goes to like just little things like um, I thought I saw a 37 weeker uh, recently who is now three weeks of age and still, ha- you know, kind of a punky feeder, slow, um, you know, sleepy and the parents are like, oh, she's three weeks. Why isn't she, you know, doing a great job? And I said, well, she's just basically supposed to be born today. Like, let's give her a chance. But, yeah. oh, that's right, you know? So, I mean, they're, yeah. So anyway, um, so because of all these different factors, uh, what they recommended basically an individualized approach, which always seems like a good idea for most things in medicine. Uh, so they recommended that complementary feeding in preterm infants should start sometime between five and eight months of chronological age. So chronological meaning from, from the day that they're born, whether they're born at, you know, 32 weeks, 30 weeks, 35 weeks, 40 weeks. Um, well, not 40 weeks because we're talking about preterm infants. Um, and then also consider the limit of three months corrected age, um, to ensure the acquisition of developmental skills, which allow the consumption of solid foods. In other words, if they're um, 
if they're three months old, but they were born at, you know, two months early, they're born at 32 weeks, wait until they're, they would be three months past their due date before you actually start solids. And then um, the introduction of allergenic foods, like, and they, they actually added tomato to this. We usually in this country talk about eggs, fish, and peanuts, but they said tomato as well. Um, should not be delayed in preterm infants. So meaning giving them some tastes of those things uh, would be appropriate. And then, um, and then they reminded everyone that if the baby has been weaned to a vegetarian or vegan diet to make sure that they're getting vitamin B12 supplementation and everyone should have vitamin D supplementation. And that infants who do not have extra uterine growth retardation can be fed with exclusive breastfeeding um, or mixed feeding in case there's not enough breast milk or standard infant formula enriched with um, long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, but then infants with extra uterine growth retardation or at high risk for long-term growth failure need to have fortified human milk or formula milk adapted for preterm infants as long as necessary to gain an optimal weight for corrected age. So um, that's basically the recommendation is just to probably look at all the things and see when this baby's uh, ready and not use a definite age and being careful about not having to be too early for these babies. That is so interesting. And it really highlights the lack of, you know, research that we have on yet another thing related to infant feeding. Yes, Absolutely. And then, um, yeah, so, and then I just have one little snippet to add uh, to the end of this podcast, which is a study that I found fascinating. Um, this was this is a study entitled An In Vitro Human Mammary Epithelial Cell Permeability Assay to Assess Drug Secretion into Breast Milk. And this, the first author is Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G, and this was done, um, this study was done in uh, Bangor, Maine, um, and also in New Jersey. So it was a study among a few different people. So um, so you and I, Karen, we, you know, we know, I always tell you what you know. <laughs> I always seem to start that way. Um, but we <laughs> both know that there are a lot of people out there lactating who are taking all kinds of medications, and we don't have any data on the pharmacokinetics because we're not organized or funded well enough to gather this info, right? So like if I look up, you know, uh, uh, maybe like antibiotic one. or, you know, a medication that probably a lot of people are using, right? Um, we don't have any data because no one, we don't, we're not organized enough to like get that data from people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so the idea is that uh, we basically end up using pharmacologic principles to take an educated guess as to how well the medications pass into breast milk. So we're thinking about, well, it's probably not a big deal. Like for example, Humira, which is um, one of the monoclonal antibodies that people use for like Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis and all sorts of anti, all sorts of inflammatory illnesses. There's not a lot of data, right? Maybe more for that one, but for its cousins where there's like millions of these monoclonal antibody treatments coming out, we, you know, and people are using them during lactation, we're saying, yeah, it's okay because they're so large, they're not passing into the milk. Oh yeah, uh, this was a huge issue at the beginning of COVID when we were like, oh, there's these new immunologics and we have zero data, but they're really big. They don't get into the milk and oh yeah, PS, if they're in the stomach, they get destroyed. So go ahead. Exactly, right. So, I mean, that's good that we are that, that we've progressed that far. Um, 
but uh, this, so this assay was done actually to, you know, set up the cell line of, uh, of what we call mammary epithelial cells to actually see what happens with medications. So just for terminology, um, you know, the term milk producing cells, um, some people call them lactocytes, some people call them mammary epithelial cells. Uh, oftentimes there's the acronym MECs, just so you know that that's what we're calling these cells where the majority of the components in breast milk are made. It's like the little factory, the milk making factories. Um, so I'm going to either use the term lactocytes or mammary epithelial cells. So, um, so this assay, this, this study was really done to see if this is, you know, feasible and how to make sure that the cell line is actually working appropriately. So they basically took cells that these little milk making factories, they took a line of cells and they wanted to see if they put the drug on what we call the basal side, the side that faces the maternal circulation. Um, how well does the drug diffuse through the cell into the milk space and to the other side of the, of the membrane of the cell, what we call the apical side. And, um, and just to step back for a second, we know that for things to get into breast milk, they largely go through the milk via diffusion, meaning the kind of like when you pour water through your coffee filter, that's diffusion, right? The water just goes right through the filter and boom into the coffee cup or the thermos. Um, and so that's what happens with drugs as well. But then if you have, let's say you're pouring, um, you know, like uh, milk or blob or yogurt, you'll say you're, you're pouring yogurt through your coffee filter, it's going to kind of sit there, right? It's not going to get through into your cup. And so that's because there are these really large globs of, you know, yogurt that can't get through. And so that's kind of like these principles of medication. So that if the medications are really large, the molecules are really large, they can't get through the membrane of the cell, right? So, um, so the, the, so this was just really more of a feasibility study. Like, is this whole thing going to work? And they were, and what they really found is that it, you have to have the right mixture in the, uh, in the assay itself around the cells, because there's spaces between cells, which are called tight junctions. And sometimes those tight junctions are not very tight and tight junctions are, it's not just like a fence that like we have between houses where the fence is just like a structure that's in it, that's inert and not active. It's really more the tight junctions between cells is really more like our um, immigration process where we like our borders <laughs> you know, where, where the cars have to be checked and you know they get scrutinized. You have to check a passport. So tight junctions are really very actively managed in mammary tissue. And so then the question is like, what are all the factors that control tight junctions? Um, and so that's what they were sorting out in this article, which I thought was really fascinating. And they basically found that there has to be this right amount of insulin, hydrocortisone, and epidermal growth factor in order to keep the tight junctions tight in order for, yeah, in order to make sure that the <sighs> traffic of the drugs is flowing through the cell and not 
Oh my gosh. Cheating through the tight junctions. That's so so fascinating. I mean, like when you very first started talking about the diffusion, I was about to be like, what about the tight junctions? Because we know, particularly at the very beginning of lactation, I mean, that's part of the reason when you're thinking about, you know, drugs, we always say like in the colostrum phase versus later on, those tight junctions aren't very tight. And also, you know, if there's, hyperlactation, they could be less tight. So it's so yes. fascinating. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that I love about this is, you know, just whole issue about tight junctions. I think we have so much more to learn. And um, like you said, you know, the tight junctions close early postpartum, and that's why there can be higher medication levels in colostrum because these medications just can like ramrod through the border because there's no border police there. And, uh, <laughs> And so then it's actually, I think the drop in progesterone actually helps to strengthen the tight junctions. And then having a higher prolactin level also helps to keep the tight junctions closed. And then with hyperlactation, when there's like a lot of milk present, um, like you said, you know, the tight junctions open, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like your, um, your uh, pressure cooker, you know, like your instant pot where, you know, at a certain point, like, you know, the pressure leads, right? So when the alveolus is really full, the, you know, the pressure cooker is like, oh, we gotta like release the pressure. And then the tight junctions open. And that's when, um, you know, that's when like, actually, you know, there's this recent study that shows how like lactose leaves from the milk space through the tongue junctions back to what we call the basal portion of the cell, like, you know, where the nutrients enter the cell. And it actually says, stop making milk. So lactose is actually a feedback mechanism. And I just had a conversation with Laura Hernandez, who's our, you know, phenomenal mammary biologist. She's going to give us more of a lecture on this uh, later on in the year with IABL. Um, But uh, it's, this is like a really cool uh, method that we feed back. But then I just want to add one more thing is that if the junctions are open, are more likely to be open during hyperlactation, does that mean that more meds and food proteins are crossing through the tight junctions? And is that why we see more, almost like more cow's milk sensitivity in these, in more bloody stools in these babies among uh, lactating parents who have high production? Aha! So, oh my gosh, this, yeah, we could just geek, geek out on this all day long. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, food for thought, more, more information on that coming up. So um, maybe we should just leave it there and let people sort of like space out on that idea. <laughs> Make them really curious about Laura's lecture. Can't yes, wait to hear uh, it. Yes. I'm super excited. Yeah. Lots to share. So, okay. It was great talking to you. Have a good rest of your day and uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Bye, Anne. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.